Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Shortly before the presidential election, I sat down with Mike Morrell, the former acting director of the CIA, who had endorsed Hillary Clinton, uh, to talk about his career in in the intelligence agency, 30 years there, his experiences through 9-11, the bin Laden raid, uh, and his general sense of the world. But uh, much of this interview was predicated on an assumption, and that assumption was that Hillary Clinton would be elected president. So just bear that in mind as you listen to this interview and Mike Morell's extraordinary story. Mike Morell, welcome uh, here and welcome to the Institute of Politics, where you've been a splendid fellow. Thank you. Thank you. uh, This quarter. Um, you know, in digging into your life, uh, I look back at your youth, and it didn't point to becoming sort of one of the lead intelligence officers for the United States of America. Uh, talk about growing up in uh, northeastern Ohio. Yeah, so I um, came from a middle-class family. Um my father was an auto worker for Chrysler. Um, my mom was um, a homemaker. Um, occasionally she uh, would uh, be a salad girl at a local um, restaurant. Um, but other than that, she was home. Is that what they were called, salad girls? Salad girls, right. She chopped a salad in the morning and laid it all out for the salad bar. Salad there girl. There were no salad guys. Huh? <laughs> there were no salad guys. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I, I, there was a, there was an emphasis in the house on learning um, and education. Um, were your parents? Uh, did they were they so, college educated? Nope, just high school grads. Mm-hmm. Um, no college at all. Um, my sister was the the first in the household to go to college, and I, I followed behind her. There was always there was always the assumption that we would go to college. There was never any question about that. And there was there was never any question that we would stay at home when we went to college and go to the University of Akron. I mean that was that was what what the plan was. Um, there was for no cost or for for I, I think closeness it was, of family it was culture. It was closeness to family and it was financial. Mm-hmm. And it was all of that and and so I never even thought of going anywhere else. I never looked anywhere. Um, but I went Plus, there. it is the traditional spawning ground of of government officials. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I had a great conversation with President Bush once when when he was uh, he was um, critiquing intellectuals, and in the middle of his critique, um, he turned to me 
And he said, Michael, you're not an intellectual, are you? And I said, <laughs> I said, Mr. President, University of Akron here. <laughs> was that a bonding thing? <laughs> yes, it actually was. Of course, he was Harvard and Yale, but uh, be that as it may. He, he, uh, he, uh, the fact that I went to the University of Akron resonated with him. You know, uh, speaking of your sister, uh, she said of you when, when he was a kid, one day he wanted to be a garbage man, the next day he wanted to be a brain surgeon. So it was anybody's guess. But when he said he was moving to Washington and had a job with the CIA, that was the last thing I expected. Uh, was that the last thing you expected? Yes, because um, at the University of Akron, where I, I happened to get a great education, um, I fell in love with economics. Um, I majored in it. I fell in love with it. And why? It seemed to me to explain not only um, the economy and economic behavior, but it seemed to me to explain um, a lot of of personal behavior. Um, um, and of course, that's that's the school here at Chicago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I f- so fell in love with it that I wanted to go to grad school get a PhD, and teach. And I applied to a number of places, including the University of Chicago, because it it was teaching the kind of economics that I was interested in, and I got in. Um, And I was going to come to the PhD program here. Wow. Um, I had a professor at the University of Akron who I think did some work from the agency, and he encouraged me to send the agency an application, send them a resume. Um, So I did. Um, They invited me to Washington. Um, I had never been to Washington, D.C. before. Huh. So I said, sure, I'll come. Um, and I went for two days um, on the government's dime um, to do interviews, but to actually see our nation's capital, right, um, on the government's money. Um, with, the, with the intention the entire time, David, of if offered a job saying no. And off to the University of Chicago, I was going to go and get a Ph.D. and teach. But the two days in Washington at the CIA um, – uh, changed all of that. Um, I was blown away by the mission of keeping the country safe. I Which was, at that time was l- very much influenced by the Cold War, absolutely. right? The Soviet were, Union was the yes, big brooding presence out there. Yes, yes. And my first job, my very first job, was to work with a team um, that was trying to figure out how dependent Western Europe was going to become on Soviet natural gas if the Soviets built two pipelines and President Reagan authorized the sale of GE turbines for these type um, for these pipelines. So my work still that. still an issue today. I mean yes, it's kind of it's played come, into the geopolitics of that region it's come back, to this day. Right? It's come yeah. back. Um, so I was blown away by the mission of the place. I was blown away by the capabilities of the organization. I was blown away by the quality of the people that I met. And they said, you know, this grad school thing you want to do, we'll pay for that. That's a, that's, that would be influential too, yeah. And um, let, let me just stop you. I want to go on with your history, but I don't want to leave economics uh, because you're from Akron and because you're a student of economics. Uh, just as an aside, uh, what, what's happened to regions like that? Uh, here and elsewhere, because I know you've studied global economics, and how much does it inform your understanding? We're going to get into 2016 later, but how much does it inform your understanding of what's going on in our politics today? Actually, a lot. Um, You know, what's happened to places like Northeast Ohio, um, 
Pittsburgh, Youngstown, Detroit. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of people um, who have been left behind by globalization and technology. Um, not only people who who are a little bit older um, and don't have the skills to operate in the modern economy, but actually people coming out of high school. Um, who don't have them either because our education system is not teaching the skills that are necessary to succeed in this economy. So the world is leaving people behind. And, you know, I experienced this personally. When, when I was 12, 13 and first became aware of the family finances, my dad made $20,000 a year. And that was enough to put us solidly in the middle class in Akron, Ohio. Um, when he retired some 20 years later, he was still making $20,000 a year, a little bit more, but he was still making $20,000 a year roughly. And you can't be in the middle class anymore. Um, and so it is not possible to be an unskilled worker in the United States of America and be in the middle class. And that is a huge change. And, you know, I happen to believe as, as an economics uh, guy, um, I've done now all the coursework for a PhD. The agency came through and did pay for that. It sent me away to school for a year, paid my salary, paid for school. Um, you know, I believe about in, time to finish, don't you think? Yeah, no, no, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> um, um, you know that 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 capitalism is is one of the most powerful forces for good in the history of the world. I really believe that. Um, but if we don't take care of these people who have been left behind, we're going to lose that. Yeah. Right. I, I, listen, I'm, I'm so with you on this. I, I, I think my great disappointment about this campaign is that the fundamental challenge of our time is in these revolutionary times when it comes to changes in our economy. We really haven't thought through uh, what the implications are for those who are left behind. And I don't think it's just about social welfare right. programs because work is not just about a paycheck. It's right. about dignity. It's about exactly. self-worth. Exactly. And, I, and you see that uh, I think that that's a lot of the force behind what we see with Donald Trump. And I know you've studied these global trends. I think Europe is facing some of these same uh, issues. They've got unique challenges relative to migration and their own social welfare structure and the aging of populations, but but not completely dissimilar. And, you know, I don't think we've come up with great answers yet. So I've seen this play many, many times watching the rest of the world. Right? I've seen struggling economies where people are not doing well and they turn to populist candidates, either on the left or on the right. And that's exactly what happened in this election. Right? People ran to Bernie Sanders who said, I will fix this through income redistribution. And they ran to Donald Trump who said, I will just fix this right through better trade deals or I'll just fix it. I'm not even going to tell you how. And so they've gone there, right? And the history of the countries that I have seen who have ended up putting in office either a leftist populist or a rightist populist have fallen further behind economically because they're, they're, those policies on the far left or far right end up undermining the economy further. You know, it's the policies in the center that end up 
driving progress, not the policies on the on the far ends. Yet we we see not just in the U.S., but we see in France with Le Pen, Farage in Britain, who hasn't succeeded electorally, but he did push Brexit uh, to uh, to victory. And in several other, we see Germany, right. some of these forces. Uh, gathering. So this is not just a challenge for the U.S. This is a challenge right. for for advanced democracies everywhere. This globalization technology dynamic is is everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. It's affecting everybody. You uh, you went on uh, and spent uh, a great deal of time uh, in East Asia and studying uh, that part of the world. Um, since we've already since we since I've advanced this uh, discussion on uh, on the first front, talk about that. And what you saw, the evolution you've seen there, and what are the challenges for the U.S. there based on your experience? Right. right. So I started, um, not surprisingly, working out on the economics of East Asia. And what you see there, which is, a, I think, a great lesson, um, were, were two things that drove the dynamic economic growth of East Asia. One was a focus on free markets and free trade. And the other, and, and these two things go together um, beautifully, the other was a focus on education and really educating um, and, and developing a workforce who could, who could succeed in that, in that open environment. That's exactly what you saw in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, in Singapore, in South Korea. South Korea yeah. right? I mean, that, that was a huge lesson of my time watching, watching those countries. It was one of the interesting things, David, about all of that is, is – um, those market-oriented reforms and the um, the focus on education was done at a time when they were all authoritarian states, um, and they were able to drive those reforms, many of them politically unpopular, but they were able to drive them, right? And one of my concerns about a place like the Middle East, as democracy becomes more important, as the voice of the people become more important, it gets harder to do the kind of economic reforms you need to do to actually grow in the long term. So that, that's one lesson. You know, the, the, big issue, the big issue in East Asia is China. And what is our relationship with China going to look like, you know, over the next 25 to 50 years? Um, I, think, I think, David, that the most important bilateral relationship in the world is the one between Washington and Beijing, and the possible outcomes in that relationship um, are huge. They range at one end of the spectrum from cooperation, the kind of cooperation that we saw on climate change. It's fantastic. Imagine what we could do with China if we cooperated on a whole bunch of stuff. Two, on the other end of the spectrum, war. And it's a huge range of possibilities here. Um, there are, in my mind, David, two things that are pulling us together. In pulling us in the right direction and two things pulling us apart. The two things pulling us in the right direction is that we both have a huge stake, despite what Donald Trump says, we both have a huge stake in the success of the Chinese economy, particularly a reforming Chinese economy. And um, we, and, and, and I base this on my own experiences talking to Chinese intelligence officers, the number of places in the world where our national security interests are actually starting to overlap is exceeding those places where they're actually in tension. So there are opportunities for us to work together in the world for good. Great example is the Middle East, where they have even a bigger stake than we do in the stability of the place, given how much energy they they take from there and how important that is to them. 
So those are the two things pulling us in the right direction. And we need to, we need to um, use those as opportunities to push the relationship in the right direction. The two things pulling us apart, David, um, the first is we both have large militaries in the same place on the planet. Um, when that happens, you plan for war against each other. Um, you equip yourself for war against each other in, ter- in terms of the weapon systems you buy. And you exercise those war war plans, right? And both sides do it, and both sides see the other side doing it, and that creates a natural tension in the relationship. And the Chinese obviously have be- become pretty aggressive, South China Sea. And-, and that brings us to the second thing and the last thing and the hardest thing that's pulling us apart, which is they're a rising power. We're a status quo power. As a rising power, they want a greater say in the world around them. Guess who has that say today? We do, right? So how does that get resolved? A colleague of mine at the Kennedy School did a study recently where he looked at at every time in history when a rising power came up against a status quo power, resulted in war 70% of the time. So how does that fundamental tension get resolved that they want a greater say, um, but we have that say? How does that get resolved? The South China Sea is is where that's playing out today. You, uh, the, the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the trade deal that was ne- negotiated now, um, uh, before the Senate, uh, how important is that in terms of the stability or in terms of American interests in the region and American leadership in the region? Yes, I think, I think it's important for a number of reasons. I think it's important economically. I think it will enhance living standards both in East Asia and in the United States. You know, your neighbors in Akron don't believe that. I know they don't. I know they don't. And I think it's it's incumbent upon the political leadership to educate them about that. Um, two, it's important strategically. It's important from a national security perspective. Because if we don't do this, the nations of East Asia will increasingly turn to China not only for economics, but increasingly for security issues. So it's actually important from a strategic perspective. And then thirdly, you mentioned it, it's just important from the perspective of demonstrating U.S. leadership in the world, which there isn't anybody else to lead. We have to do it. You uh, you, you know, the obvious next question is uh, about your candidate. You, you've endorsed Hillary Clinton for president. She was a strong supporter of the TPP when she was Secretary of State and for some time after. Under the pressures of the campaign, she switched positions and 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 has been pretty emphatic about sticking to it uh are you uh, disappointed about that look i understand i understand um politics um i understand how it works um, she's responding to your neighbors in akron yes um um you know i i believe that you know she she moved to the left um because bernie sanders forced her there um i happen to believe that she will govern from the center when you say that you expect uh, Hillary Clinton to govern from the center, do you uh, believe that she will revive, if not embrace, the TPP? Um, I think um, I think there's a good chance that that TPP passes in the lame duck. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if I, I don't I don't know this, but I wouldn't be surprised if that would be her preference as well. Um, and then it's not her doing it; it's President Obama doing it in his final days. Um, so that's my sense. And do you think that'll create political problems for her on the left? 
Probably. But you'll have to manage that. You uh, you came into prom. I mean, uh, the, I think the hallmark of a CIA officer is to have no prominence at all. But you had a prominent position as a result of being the briefer to President George W. Bush during a very freighted time in our history. Um, uh, talk about, first of all, talk about him. Uh, and I want to talk, obviously, about that period. You were there when the World Trade Center was attacked. You delivered this report, this famous report in August of 2001 that was entitled Bin Laden Determined to Strike in the U.S. that some people say should have been a red flag. Um, talk about George W. Bush first as a, yeah. as a person and as a president that you dealt with. Um, and then let's talk about 9-11 and what should have happened and what happened after. Sure. Um, I have great admiration for uh, George Bush, um, you know he spent is, a lot of time with him. Spent a lot of time with him every day um, for a year, um, six days a week, no matter where he went in the world, um, whether it was overseas trip, domestic trip. Um, that's why I was with him on nine eleven vacation. Um, at you know, his by the ranch. way, you, you one of the greatest jokes at the White House correspondence dinner was George W. Bush saying, "Look, I know people don't think I'm smart, even my." Aides don't think I'm smart. I, they put this thing called an intelligence briefing on my schedule every day, so, uh, yeah. which I thought took a lot of – I thought it was a great joke, and it, took, it, it showed something about him that he was willing to tell it. Yeah, so he was a lot smarter um, than many people thought, I found. Um, I found he was very quick to understand an issue, that he was very quick to get to the essence of the, the, you know, the core of the issue. Um, he asked great questions. Um, I thought his policy instincts were were on the money. Um, you know, I think some of his some of his closest aides took him in directions that uh, that uh, were actually against some of his instincts. Um, uh, but I found him to be to be a great consumer of intelligence and um, a, a very very serious consumer of intelligence. I also found him to be an incredibly gracious and nice man. Um, he welcomed me into his home. He welcomed me into his family. Um, David, I was I was afraid. He made me so comfortable that I was afraid I was going to slip up at some point and call him George rather than Mr. President. That's how comfortable he made me feel. Yeah. Um, when when I did the briefing in in uh, in in Crawford at the ranch, we would have breakfast. Um, before we did the briefing, um, and we'd have cereal and cereal bowls, and we talk about the baseball scores from the night before, and then we would have to do the dishes together before we, before we um, did the briefing. So I mean, that's you know, yeah, that's how how intimate. I, it got. I, I, I often tell the story about um, my encounter with him on the day that President Obama was uh, inaugurated, and um, he had been very kind to us in the transition, and he was personally kind to me and encouraging to me that day in a way that I'll never forget. I, I disagree with many of the major decisions that he made, but uh, I was really impressed with him as a, a person and particularly impressed with the way he handled the transition, which to me was really an act of patriotism. You know, yeah. For me, you know, I, had been, I had been in government a long time and had been through a number of transitions. I think it was, it was uh, the best managed transition that I had seen. 
I think they did everything they could to set you guys up for success. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. We'll be back with Mike Morell. So about that report. Uh, August 6th, 2001. It's like but yesterday. Who, but who's counting? Who's counting? Yeah. What should have been done that wasn't done with that report? Nothing. So here's the story of that report. Um, in the spring and early summer of 2001, we were getting um, considerable intelligence chatter that al-Qaeda was planning a significant attack, um, possible multiple targets, um, possibly a catastrophic attack. Uh, the intelligence said nothing about location, method, or timing. Um, it turns out that what we were picking up in the, the spring and early summer of 2001 was bin Laden going from training camp to training camp to training camp in Afghanistan and giving pep talks to his guys um, and telling them that something big was coming and that's all he was saying, right? And so we were picking up the chatter that was resulting from all of that. So every time, every time that George Tenet, who was then the director of central intelligence, who sat in on the briefings and I presented some of this intelligence to the president, he would always ask, Michael, is there any indication in this intelligence that this attack could be here? He was deeply concerned about that. And we would always answer, David, we would always say, there's nothing in the intelligence that says that, but he would like nothing more than to bring the fight here. He's planning to do that. He wants to do that. So nothing in the intelligence that takes us there, Mr. President, but he would like to do that. Um, so he kept on asking this over and over and over again. And I finally asked our guys to do a report for him about bin Laden's intentions in the United States. So that was the August 6th PDB. But, but there was nothing actionable. In there that. was nothing actionable. It simply said he wants to do this. He's been planning to. He's tried to over the millennium. He tried to sneak somebody into the United States who was arrested coming across the Canadian border who was going to attack LAX. He's tried to. He continues to want to. But there's nothing, right? There's nothing that links this back to the earlier reporting about a catastrophic attack. And there's nothing that we know he's planning right now. So there was nothing actionable in it. I did not treat it as a, as a hair on fire piece, and he did not read it that way. Let's move forward to September 11th. You were with him in Florida. Uh, when he was reading My Pet Goat to a bunch of school mm-hmm. kids when the word came that uh, that the World Trade Center has been struck, had been struck. What was your first reaction when you got that news? So my first reaction was that because, because we had heard one plane, one building, right? That's all we heard. So my reaction was his reaction, um, this must have been an accident. This must be a small plane, bad weather, right? Um, first thing I did was call the CIA operations center and learned very quickly that, no, the weather was fine and this was not a small plane. This was a large commercial jet. Did um, you know then that there were other planes in the air that were? No. So mm-hmm. it was at, at, at that point, it was the first, you know, the first few minutes after the, the mm-hmm. first plane hit. Um, and then I walked into the, the, the staff room, which was right next to the, the room the school had set aside for the White House staff. I was right next to where the president was, and it was in there that we saw actually saw the second plane hit. And at that point, I knew that this was terrorism, right? And 
we were in for quite a ride. Did uh, and and what was what was President Bush's reaction when you filled him in on the picture here? Um, so I had I had um, my the rest of my day, um, and I spent the rest of the day with him. The rest of my day was kind of a mixture of the intensity of doing my job in that kind of situation and the surreal. So an example of the intensity of doing my job, when we flew from Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana to Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, where he was going to do a secure video teleconference um, with his national security team, he asked to see me alone. Um, So it was me, him, and Andy Card, the White House chief Chief staff. staff, And so I sat down in his office on Air Force One, um, you know, pretty small place. Yeah. Um, And... He said to me, Michael, who did this? And it's the kind of question you get from a president. Um, and I said, Mr. President, I haven't seen any intelligence that takes us to, to, to uh, uh, the perpetrator here, um, but I'll offer you my opinion. And he said, I understand. Get on with it. I understand your caveat, and I get on with it. Um, I said, look, there's two countries that have the ability to do this, Iran and Iraq, but neither of them has anything to gain, and they have everything to lose by doing something like this. So I don't think it's one of those countries. I think the trail will take us to al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. Um, I think it'll take us there. I said um, I would bet my children's future on it. Um, I've, I've never told them that. Um, yes. He then, he then said to me, when will we know? It's another kind of question you get from a president. When will we know? Uh, And so what I did was I replayed in my mind very quickly how long it took us to know who was responsible for the various other attacks against the United States. So um, the, 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 the Africa embassy bombings, right? Two days. The coal bombing uh, in Yemen, a number of months uh, Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia a couple of years before we found out who was responsible. So I went through all of these for him. And I said, so the bottom line is we may know soon or this may take some time. Um, By this time, did you know about all the planes? And- so we at, at, at this time, um, we knew about all the planes. All the planes had been grounded. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so we knew all of that. Um, you know, another example of the intensity of doing my job was on the flight from Offutt back to Andrews. And you guys were moving around because you didn't know what the security situation exactly. was for the president. Exactly. Um, on the flight back to Andrews, the CIA sent me some intelligence that they had just received from a foreign government. So we have great relationships with mm-hmm. foreign intelligence services. When foreign intelligence service gave us some information that said what happened today was only the first wave. There's a second wave coming. So you can imagine me presenting this information to the President of the United States who had just gone through mm-hmm. the biggest attack in American history and hear his intelligence briefers telling him that this could be the first wave. Of and had he received that information? As soberly as, as you could possibly receive it. So you, you said to him, it could be Iran, it could be Iraq, but that highly unlikely that they would be involved. Um, some some time later, like a year later, uh, we're gearing up to invade Iraq. 
partly on the basis of CIA intelligence. You've been critical of that intelligence. How did we get from you on that airplane saying, not Iraq, yeah. in your instinct, to, to shifting so much of our focus to Iraq after 9-11? So I spent a lot of time with the president, you know, between September 11th and January 4th, 2002, which was my last briefing, and then I saw him occasionally after that. Um, but I was a senior CIA official at the time, um, so I spent a lot of time working on the Iraq issue. Um, I believe that what took him to war in Iraq, um, and it may be different for, for, for others, for the vice president and the secretary of defense and the deputy secretary of defense, but I think what took George Bush there was the combination of two things, was the combination of what happened on 9-11 – largest single attack in American history on our homeland and his personal belief that the most important job of a president is to protect the country and therefore he failed um, in protecting the country on 9-11 in, in, in deep in his heart, right? With the intelligence community telling him two things about Iraq. One, that they had active weapons of mass destruction programs and that they had relationship relationships with terrorists, not al-Qaeda, but relationships with other terrorist groups, largely Palestinian anti-Israeli groups. Um, and while we didn't think it was likely that he would ever share these weapons of mass destruction with those terrorist groups, we couldn't rule it out either. So I think it was the combination of what happened on 9-11 and his concern that Saddam could give weapons, could possibly give weapons of mass destruction to terrorists that would make 9-11 look small in size. That's what I think took him to war. We were wrong about the weapons of mass destruction, and that is a, you know, a fascinating story about how we ended up being wrong. Part of it has to do, you suggest in your book, and by the way, I should mention your excellent book, The Great War of Our Time, the CIA's Fight Against Terrorism from Al-Qaeda to ISIS. But you suggest that uh, Vice President Cheney was um, a, a kind of a malignant force in this whole process. Yeah, so we had, we had, we had two, two main judgments. Um, one was um, that he had, Saddam had, a weapons of mass destruction program. So he had chemical weapons. He actually physically had them. He had the ability to make biological weapons. And he was reconstituting, reconstituting his nuclear weapons program, which we knew he had previously. And he had the missiles to deliver all that stuff. So that was the WMD argument, right? And then our other judgment was that there is no relationship at all between Iraqi intelligence, the Iraqi state, and al-Qaeda. Zero. Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. They had, they had uh, no foreknowledge of it at all. They had nothing to do with 9-11. So on the WMD issue, the vice president frequently in public on Sunday shows would go a little bit further than what we said, right? So he would say that um, they're working, actively working on a nuclear weapon. It's not what we said. We said they were reconstituting their program. It's different. On the terrorism side, he said the opposite of what we actually believed. He said there was a relationship. Um, and so he, he, he went in a completely different direction than we did. And to this very day, he talks about a relationship between Iraq and al-Qaeda. Simply wasn't there. In fact— Did he make that case to the president? 
I mean, did the president believe there was a link? I don't think the president believed there's a link. Mm-hmm. So, but the president uh, understood that Cheney was out there making that case. And the president could, could that could 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 they have gotten the authorization to move on Iraq if that link had not been uh, made in the public mind that this was related to the attack on the World Trade Center? I don't know. I don't know. Right. I don't even know. See, the, mis- the, the mistake, David, that we made on Iraq WMD was not the judgment we came to. If I would bring all the intelligence we had into this room and put it on this table and you went through it, um, you too would come to the judgment that we came to that he had all these programs. Our failure was in not saying that we had low confidence in that judgment because there wasn't a lot of information. The information we had was dated. The information that we had was largely circumstantial. Um, so the mistake we, na- we made was not saying, Mr. President, we think he has these programs. What, what, what you really need to know is that we don't have high confidence in this. Had we said that to him, we still may have gone to war given, given what I think his, his psyche was, right, about the possibility of these weapons being shared with terrorists. Um, See, so had we even gotten it right, we may have gone to war. What, what about the intelligence, Mike, that, um, that says – um uh, that said that we would uh, did you give intelligence to the administration that suggested what was conveyed to the public that we would be greeted as liberators when we entered Iraq and the, the sense that this was this was somehow going to be a popular yeah action there so i happen to be one of these people that was very criti- you know self critical of myself and the organizations that i i um, that's and, been de- and demonstrated in. Um, yes. and i think one of our failures um, as well as one of the administration's failures was in not thinking through what happened the day after. So we never wrote anything that said that's kind of a failing in foreign policy generally, generally right? Yeah. Um, you know, we never wrote a piece that said, "Mr. President, you know, we're going to win this thing pretty easily from a military perspective, but it is going to be real hard to keep the peace afterwards, right? There was a reason Saddam Hussein ran the place the way he did, right? He needed to run it that way to keep it together. So it's going to be re- – we never wrote that piece, right? There was never any any policy discussion about, about what do we need to do in the aftermath, right, to keep this thing together. Um, in fact, we actually made policy decisions that made it worse. The debathification decisions right. made it a whole Disp- thing worse, disbanding right? Disbanding the Dis- army. Disbanding the army and saying that anybody who was a member of the Bath Party could never serve in government again. Right? We made it much worse. Um, so I don't think we did our job particularly well in helping him think about the aftermath. Given the aftermath, how much did that – did the invasion of Iraq and all the, the steps that followed – contribute to where we are today uh, in terms of ISIS and the, 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 the challenges we face there? So, so, so the, the, the clearly um, are going to war and the policy decisions, the debathifications we made in the first couple of months after military operations were, were you know, reportedly over. Um, that led to considerable instability. It led to the rise of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which ultimately changed its name to ISIS when it marched into Syria. Um, so it definitely played a role. Here's what I think is interesting to think about, and this is not 
a defense of what President Bush mm-hmm. did. Um, if we had not done that, the situation could actually be worse than it is today. Um, how? Um, Saddam Saddam's plan. Saddam got rid of his weapons. He had his weapons programs. He got rid of them because he wanted the sanctions to go away because they were strangling him. His intent all along was once the sanctions were gone that he would reestablish his programs. So it is not impossible that as Saddam still in power would have had weapons of mass destruction eventually. The other thing that's not impossible to think is that Iraq would have faced the same kind of Arab Spring revolt mm-hmm. that Libya faced and Syria faced and Yemen faced and Egypt faced. So it's not impossible to think that had we not gone to war in Iraq, that the situation in Iraq today could just be just as unstable as it is with nuclear with with weapons of mass destruction. So, so when you think about the counter history, it doesn't necessarily take you to a better place. You, we talked a little earlier about democracy. Um, it, how humble should we be in trying to impose democracy? Uh, Iraq is a good example. Uh, I mean, I deeply believe in democracy and revere American democracy. But when you have these sectarian rifts that we saw and, you know, what developed there was a uh, – uh, a, a Shiite leader who would not accept Sunni, particularly Sunni uh, participation as full partners. How? What? What? Are we, what should we learn from this example? We should learn that there is a timetable, right? That makes sense for every country in terms of getting from where they are today to to um, some semblance of democracy that I do think at the end of the day um, brings more stability than less. But there's a timetable. You can't impose it overnight. Um, look what happened in Gaza when we pushed for uh, free and fair elections. Um, the most org- organized group in the country, Hamas, became the leaders in Gaza. Look what happened in Egypt when we pushed for free and fair elections after Mubarak fell. The most organized group in the country um, uh, took power, the Muslim Brotherhood, right? And, and Because organization, as you know, is everything in politics, right? right? So um, there's, a, there's a lot, as you know, David, there's a lot more to democracy than just voting um, and, and, and elections. Um, and, and the rest of that has to develop, and it takes time. Um, and 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 it can't be imposed from the outside. I think what we need to ask for in these countries um, is good governance, right? Is is delivering to the people what it is they need, um, and push for that, and let let democracy um, come when it may. That's the kind even of if lesson. it means in, uh, supporting uh, autocratic regimes at at least in the interim yes i think so would it have been any different um you know the argument has been made that had we not uh, followed through uh on the uh, st- uh status of forces agreement and, right. and removed troops from all our troops from iraq that this would not have happened do you believe that to be the case uh so i think it would have been harder for al-qaeda in iraq to bounce back um I'm not sure that 
that it it, it would have prevented the it, its its bounce back and the ultimate rise of ISIS, but it was certainly a contributing factor. Less less because of the role. This is really interesting. Less because of the role that the U.S. military played in in keeping. AQI, al-Qaeda in Iraq, under pressure, and more because when the U.S. military left the country, Maliki felt that yeah, he had a free right. hand, right? Mm-hmm. That he had a free hand to take on the Sunnis, to disenfranchise them at every turn. You know, as soon as we left, he put out an arrest warrant for his own vice president, Sunni vice president, um, and he drove, right, his behavior drove moderate Sunnis into the hands of the extremists. Do you think he wanted us to leave? Yes, and could we have stayed the, despite the fact that he wanted us to leave? No, um, he would not. He would not agree to the status of forces agreement that we have everywhere else in the world, where we put immunity our on for the our forces. Immun- yes, that we'll we'll take care of any problems, right? Any crimes committed by our guys, right? They're not going to get tried in your system. Mm-hmm. They're going to get tried in our system. That's essentially what the status of forces agreement is. We're going to take another short break, and we'll be back with Michael Morell. Let's talk about the other president that you served at a very high level and the one that I work for, uh, uh, Barack Obama. You, you assessed George Bush. Talk about Obama. Um, brilliant. Uh, absolutely brilliant. Um, an amazing mind. Uh, uh, has a thousand questions. Um, sees, Which you think is a strength and a weakness? Yes. So it's um, you know he sees complexity. He understands complexity in a way that I've never seen in any other president. Um, I think the weakness, right? I mean, your weaknesses. What's interesting about people and organizations is your weaknesses flow from your always, strengths. Always, you know, always. Um, and so um, you know his the way his mind works. And I don't know if you saw this, but the way his mind works and. Um, his trying to understand every possible angle means that decision-making is sometimes slow. Um, and I think that's the downside. Um, and I saw that in a number of issues. Um, but, you know, he is he, – he, I found him to be much more introverted than President Bush. Um, you know, I found him uh, – but I found him to be as equally – interested in intelligence and equally, um, um, you know, a, a, a good consumer of intelligence. I saw him at policy. I saw this brilliance at policy meetings over and over. Um, I saw when there were disagreements in the room that he was able to find um, not a consensus solution, but he was able to find a solution um, to which everybody could agree. And that's, I think that's a remarkable trait in an executive. And I thought he had that. Let's talk about two things that happened on his watch now as his days uh, wind down as president. Uh, one was triumphant and one was was controversial. Um, and let's take the controversial one first because you, the CIA was in the middle of this. That was Benghazi and the attack on the outpost in Benghazi in which the ambassador and three others uh, were killed. And there was controversy at the time because Susan Rice – uh, who uh, was then ambassador to the United Nations, said on television that uh, this was precipitated by reaction to uh, a film that was viewed as anti, uh, anti-Islam. Um, and it evolved that there was some an organized effort there. 
this has become sort of you, you're supporting Hillary Clinton. So let's and, and as we record this, we don't we don't know the outcome of that election. I should say that, but Hillary Clinton has come under tremendous fire for that the accusation being that she misled uh, and that the administration misled the American people. You were in the middle of that. Yep. What what's your sense of that? Um so 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 my sense um is that the criticism of Secretary Clinton on what she said to the families of the fallen about what precipitated the attack is um, is is very unfair. Um, you know, she's criticized for telling the families that the attack was precipitated by the anti-Muslim video and telling Chelsea um, in an email that it was a terrorist attack. Um, and somehow this is seen as her being deceptive, her lying. Here's what's interesting. Number one, number one, those two things are not inconsistent, right? The, it was a terrorist attack, absolutely. Um, we saw it as a terrorist attack. Uh, and there are many, many different things that precipitate terrorist attacks. So there, those two things are not inconsistent. Second, um, Susan Rice was criticized for saying the attack was precipitated by, by um, an anti-Muslim video. Secretary Clinton was criticized for saying it. Guess what? It turns out that it probably was. Uh, it turns out. It turns out that it was. It, it, it was a reasonable thing to conclude at the time, because. And did the CIA conclude that? So what we said, we we did not say that the video precipitated the attack. What we said was that Benghazi was was caused by people in Benghazi watching what happened in Cairo, which was precipitated by the anti-Muslim video. That's what we said. Um, there were, as a result a of this parable video, of life in the social media age. We we were seeing these these demonstrations and protests in many many different places in the Muslim world as a result of this video. So when one happens in Benghazi, right? Um, when there's and and we said there were that that this was a protest, right? That turned violent. That's what we said. We were wrong about that, but that's what we said. So in in that context, it's not unreasonable for people to conclude that a video caused this. The second point I'd make is the only guy, the only guy ever arrested for this attack, Abu Qatala, who was grabbed in Libya and brought to the United States and is going to be tried in the United States. Abu Qatala says that that there were two things that um, – that that motivated the attack. One of them, he said, was the anti-Muslim video. So it turns out that both Susan Rice and Secretary Clinton were right about what they said. On the uh, the, the second thing I wanted to raise was the uh, the raid on the Bin Laden uh, headquarters and the, the killing of Bin Laden. You were around uh, then. T- talk about the process that led up to that and the decision that the president had to make. Uh, so this was um, um, this was one of the defining experiences of my career. Um, you know, from the moment we lost Bin Laden in January of 2004, when he slipped out of the mountains of Tora Bora in Afghanistan and went into Pakistan, we followed every lead um, 
that we ever got on him, and there were hundreds of leads. Um, there was one of those leads that started way back in 2002 that never the thread never ran out. It just kept getting it just kept taking us to a different place. And in August of 2010, um, my counterterrorism guys walked into Director Panetta's office and told us um, that they had found this incredibly unique compound. And when they told us about the compound and its amazing security features, you know, 12 to 18 foot walls topped with barbed wire, a house with very few windows, um, a terrace that had a, a, a concrete um, concrete wall so you couldn't see in or out of the terrace, and, and it's, you know, a section, the compound was sectioned off, so it wasn't easy to move from one place to another. There were, there were two gates you had to go through to get in. It was the only way into the compound. And the hair starts standing up in the back of your neck when they're telling you this kind of stuff. And they had followed a guy there um, who, was, who we knew was once close to bin Laden. Uh, so we, we took all of this to the president in September of 2010. And um, told him all this. Didn't tell him that we believed that we had concluded Bin Laden was there, but you know it was a possibility. Um, the president gave us two orders. He said, number one, find out more about what's going on in that compound, and number two, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody this. Nobody knows this except the people in this room and the people at the agency who you need to tell to get to get the job done. Don't tell DOD. Don't tell State Department. Don't tell anybody. Is the most closely kept secret in my 33-year career. So we gathered more intelligence um, um, over the next few months and kept the president informed um, through a series of, of continuing meetings with him. Um, and that, that additional intelligence led the analysts to conclude that there was a strong possibility that that bin Laden was being harbored um, at this compound in Abbottabad. Those were pretty much the exact words. So in late in the year, late in 2010, the president ordered us to um, consider some consider the options for taking action. And at first he said, we should only do that, but then he said, no, reach out to DOD and finally bring them into this. Um, and we did, and um, uh, Bill McRaven, who was then the commander of the Joint Special Operations Command, um, and we worked very closely on these various options. Um, over the next few months, the options were the various options were briefed to the president. Um, and it's been publicly they, there was a model built of this compound, and this and, and training began for such a an action. Exactly. Um, so you know the 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 there were four or five options, and all of them had upsides and downsides. Um, for a while, I thought the president was going to pick. Um, the airstrike option, you know, a couple of B-2 bombers just wiping the place off the face of the planet. Um, but then you would never know. So there was a whole bunch of problems with that. Um, one was uh, you would never know. Two, um, you'd kill a bunch of women and children in the compound. Three, you would definitely kill a family that lived across the street that had absolutely nothing to do with the compound. And four, because precision munitions do not always fall where they're supposed to, you'd probably kill other people in the neighborhood as well. Um, and you wouldn't get the chance to get any intelligence that might happen to be there. Right? So, you, so for a lot of reasons, that was a bad option. The only good, the only good, um, the only upside of that option was you wouldn't put U.S. troops at risk. 
Um, so the president ultimately picked what I thought was the best option, um, but it was the option that put U.S. servicemen at most risk, which was the ground operation. And that was a pretty fraught discussion, and uh, there were a lot of arguments on both sides, and the consequences of being wrong were obviously great. What did you learn about him in that process? Um, you know, I saw more of what I always saw, right, which was um, asking about every every issue and wanting to know what we thought about every possible issue from, you know, from um, uh, how do we deal with the Pakistanis in the aftermath? That's, this, this is a place where we actually thought through that, right? How do we deal with the Pakistanis in the aftermath of this? What do we do with the body? What are the upsides? Because they were going to be hopping mad. Yeah. Yeah. What are all the what are all the options for dealing with the body afterwards? And what are the upsides and downsides? Right. So we did, we did we, we did fifteen twenty papers for him based on these questions he was asking. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a particularly interesting moment in in the sit room where where we were talking about. Our, our confidence level that he was there, and we were talking in probabilities. What's the probability that he's there? The lead analyst from CIA said, I'm 95% sure. Her boss um, 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 at CIA said he, he was only 80% sure. I said I was only 60% sure. And the president turned to Dr. Panetta and said, why is everybody all over the map on this? And I was sitting behind the director against the wall, and, and Panetta turns around and looks at me and says, Michael? <laughs> um, so I answered his question, and, and and I said, Mr. President, I think I think people are washing all of this data through their experiences. So the counterterrorism people, who since nine eleven have known nothing but success after success after success in stopping plots and taking terrorists off the battlefield, are washing washing this data through that success. Me, I'm washing it through the Iraq WMD experience. In fact, I said, Mr. President, the case that that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction was stronger than the case that bin Laden is at Abbottabad. Hmm. And my friend, a, a good friend of mine, Mike Vickers, who was in the room, um, said you could hear a pin drop. Mm-hmm. And the president said, Michael, does this mean you wouldn't do this? And I said, no, 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 no. I do it for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, but, you know, there, I, I've, never, I've never seen a president who is more thoughtful um, and listens listens as carefully as he does and takes the information on board in, in as as his thinking continues. I uh I'd be remiss, even though we'll know the result of the election by the time this is heard, uh to uh, to if I didn't ask you about your decision, you've been um a a civil servant, you've not been involved in politics, the CIA is 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 not involved in politics, uh, but you endorsed Hillary Clinton. Uh, why? So going into the election, David, I had no intent um, to say anything about my preference for president. Um, but as we got into the summer and as we got into the general election, as as as, as the conventions came and went, and we got into the general election campaign, um, I became deeply concerned about two things. One was that not only not only did I think that Donald Trump would not 
do a good job as president, I actually believe that he would be a threat to the nation. That is really strong language, I just said. Yeah, I recognize um, it as such. Um, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why I, I believed it then, and I still believe it. Um, and I also believed that, that, that her capabilities to do the job were not shining through the tarnish that a life in politics puts on you. It's based on, on your her. observation based of on her. My, based on my, my, my time with her, my four years with her when she was Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. I traveled with her to a couple of different places. Um, I spent time with her in her office at the State Department. Um, and I spent a lot of time, hundreds of hours with her in the Situation Room. Um, and so I didn't think those capabilities were shining through. And I was sharing all this with my family and sharing all this with my with my young adult children. Yeah. Some of um, whom I know because they've been splendid participants <laughs> in the Institute of Politics. And, and love the Institute of Politics. Um, and they said to me, Dad, don't you – you know, you feel really strongly about this. Don't you have a responsibility to say something? And as the more I thought about that, I, I, I thought they were right. Now, this was a really tough decision for me um, for the reasons you said. Right? Um, intelligence officers are supposed to be nonpartisan, apolitical. Um, and so it was stepping outside of that norm. Um, it was also stepping into something I had never been involved in in my life. So it was not comfortable. It felt uncomfortable. I knew I was going to be attacked. Um, and I knew the agency was going to be attacked. And not only would they attack me, they would attack the agency. In fact, the very day my New York Times op-ed came out, um, um, Mike Pence said, well, what do you expect from an agency that gets everything wrong? Um, so I knew the agency would be attacked. Um, and so it was a big, big deal for me. Um, but at the end of the day, I felt it was the right thing to do for the country. And I would do it again. Um, what was your reaction when, uh, in the last days of the campaign, uh, uh, the FBI director, Comey, uh, sort of intruded on the race uh, by saying what he said, that there were these additional emails that uh, were now being examined? Uh, because he, in a sense, is in the same position as you were in when you were interim director of the CIA. I mean, there are organizational responsibilities to protect the integrity of the organization. Were you sympathetic to him? What was your reaction? No. Um, um, I, have, I have deep respect for Jim's um, integrity. Um, you don't think he was acting a partisan no, motion? No, motion, not motion. at all. Not mm-hmm. at all. Um, I think he was trying to protect his organization. Um, um, but as... Uh, as Eric Holder wrote in the Washington Post over the weekend um, in response to Comey's actions, um, people make mistakes. And I think, I think Jim made a series of terrible mistakes here. Um, look, I've been, I've been in situations where you have to make a decision to do your job, and that decision has political consequences. And what I've learned is that the best approach is to do it the way you always do it, right? Whatever the issue is, just do it the way you always do it and let the chips fall where they may and fall back on, always fall back on, look, I I just did my job, no politics in mind, and we did this the normal way. We didn't do anything differently. 
And back in July, when he stood up and said, we're not recommending prosecution, but then proceeded to prosecute her publicly, um, and then went to the Hill a number of occasions um, and answered questions about this, he went outside the norm. Uh, And I think he did it with the intent of protecting his organization and trying to keep his organization out of politics, but the effect has been just the opposite. Right, and now people are questioning his integrity. They're questioning the integrity of the FBI. Um, they're questioning whether this is an independent organization. Um, I, I feel sorry for him, but he made the wrong decisions here. I um, there's so much more I'd like to cover with you, but we're 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 running out of time here. I do want to ask you uh, about something that seems that's become very ripe in this campaign, which is cybersecurity because of the strikes on the DNC. And um, how significant is this threat in the future? And how fortified are we to, uh, to deal with it? So I think this is the second biggest threat facing our country at the moment. I think international terrorism is still number one. But I think this is the fastest growing threat, and it is likely to overtake international terrorism as the most significant threat. Um, because you can cripple an entire country with uh, the, uh, with a sophisticated cyber attack. The way we're wired now, absolutely. And there's there's you know there's there's different sets of adversaries here. You know, one set of adversary are nation states um, who use it to collect intelligence. Hey, guess what? So do we. Mm-hmm. Um, who use it to um, to to prepare for cyber war someday? Hey, guess what? So do we. Um, but some of these nation states um, also use it to steal intellectual property and give it to their firms to make them more competitive. We don't do that. Um, and some of these countries, as we're seeing with Russia right now, use this information for. Um, what we would call covert action purposes, right? To try to change something somewhere, as we're seeing with Putin trying to interfere with our election. Um, we don't. We don't do that. Uh, we don't try to interfere in other countries' politics. We really don't. Most people. Most people find that hard to believe, but we don't. Putin would. Putin believes. 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 We are. In some right. sense, he feels he's responding right. to that. Right. But we don't. Um, the number of nation states with the capability to get inside networks, the capability to steal information from networks, and the capability to do damage to networks is growing very rapidly because the tools you need to do those three things are increasingly available on the black market, on the deep web. You don't need to develop them themselves. You can just buy them. So the number of nation states getting into this business is growing rapidly. Second, you've got organized crime. Cybercrime now generates more revenue than the illicit drug trade. It's remarkable. But organized crime is in this in a huge way, and it's growing rapidly. And they're doing everything from locking up the photos on your personal laptop and sending you an email that says, I'll unlock them for $99, and many people just pay it, to stealing corporate financial information um, and selling it, um, to to um, stealing credit card information from from companies and either selling those that credit card information on the black market or coming back to the company they stole it from and say, hey, we have this information. We'll give it back to you for $300,000. So cybercrime, the, the, the rate of return 
to cybercrime is astronomical. If it, were, if it were a legal business, we would be investing in it. And there's terrorism it. itself. There's terrorism. Uh, there's hacktivists. And then there's the most dangerous cyber adversary of all, which are the very people who work for us, who for some reason might get mad at us. Um, and you know maybe they, they think that, that we're not promoting them fast enough, that we don't see their brilliance. Um, that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they're or gonna, they disagree with our policy. Or disagree with policy, and they're going to take it out on us, right? And they have access to networks and ac- access to information to do damage. That's the Edward Snowden story. That's the insider threat story. Um, and it's a big, big issue. And um, there's a lot of policy that needs to get worked out with regard to cyber. Um, this is a new domain. You know, we have air, sea, land, and space. This is a new domain. We got to figure out the norms around it. We got to figure out policy around it. That's just starting. Um, and people have to put in place um, the best security they can. And it's a moving target because the offense always gets better and offense gets to move first. You know, think about a football game where the offensive line gets to move one second before the defensive line gets to move. Think about that advantage. That's what's happening in cyber. So this is a this is just a huge issue. I wish I could uh, explore uh, other issues with you, and I hope we'll have a chance to do that in the future. But uh, Michael Morell, thank you for being here. Thank you for being at the IOP. David, thank you for the invitation to be at IOP, and and, and thank you for the interview. It's fantastic. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.